Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Today, we're talking about Miniscript for Bitcoin. And my guests are Antoine of Revolt or Wizard Sardine and Salvatore from Ledger. So they're joining me to talk about Bitcoin Miniscript. What is it? How does it enable new uses of Bitcoin, such as inheritance, time locking or business use? What are some of the aspects around security and complexity of this? What does it mean in practice? And what does some of the software and hardware look like? Now, this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan is launching a new service. It's called Swan Premium. So if you've wanted updates on exclusive research on what's going on in the industry as well as educational content, Swan Premium is for you. Swan Premium will also offer discounts on Bitcoin products as well as privileged access to many Swan events. As you know, Swan is hosting a whole range of events, whether that is Swan Salon events or whether that is Pacific Bitcoin, which is the new annual Bitcoin conference. Now, normally this is going to cost $20 per month, but Swan is offering it free right now for those of you who sign up before the end of January. So if you are interested in swan premium go to swan.com slash premium now for those of you who are builders or product designers or just simply interested community members there is build on l2 this is a community for bitcoin builders by blockstream so this is especially important if you're interested in building on core lightning or the liquid network this is an interactive community platform where builders can come together and you can share your notes you can join there will be mentorship programs to help fast track your success there'll be a community space to learn something new alongside other builders so go and sign up for early access over at build on on l2.com. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin hardware, coinkite.com makes some of my favorite products, most notably the cold card. This is a really useful and versatile tool that you can use to securely store your Bitcoin in various configurations. Now, you can use it in a basic mode where you just directly plug it to the computer, or you can use it with NFC, with wallets such as Nunchuck, or if you're more security conscious, you can use the micro SD card and do what's called air gapping to move your transactions and your public key information back and forth between the cold card physical device and the computer. So go to coinkite.com to order your cold cards and use the code Levera for a discount there. And now onto the show with Antoine and Salvatore. Antoine and Salvatore, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Stefan. So I know you guys are both uh, building out some stuff in Miniscript, obviously software and hardware. And I know this is an interesting area. There's been a bit of discussion about it, but there's also been some critique about it as well. So I'd be interested to uh, you know, get into this with you guys. Um, but maybe first, if we could start, what was your interest? Like, why did you get interested in this idea of Miniscript? For me, it was starting working on Revolt and actually having the responsibility of developing the project and tinkering with Bitcoin scripts and thinking, well, I'm not going to take the responsibility of writing Bitcoin scripts by hand, so I need a framework to do that safely. Yeah. And for you, Salvatore? And for me as well, it was kind of a natural extension of the work I was already doing to support multi-signature. Like when I was uh, figuring out what is the best way of doing multi-signature, I figured out I figured out that a lot of the things that I was doing would actually generalize to more complex scripts. And because the possibilities of using uh, more complex scripts have a lot of potential applications, as we probably uh, discuss, I thought that I should plan that from the beginning, from the get-go. And so that has been on the roadmap since. Like we already probably mentioned something like that on the episode uh, last year, but now it's ready, so... Yeah, fantastic. And so let's try to make sure we keep it accessible for people as well as we go. So let's just start with a very basic, what is what is Miniscript? Okay. Um, so Miniscript is a framework for 
writing Bitcoin scripts safely. So it was created by Peter Velo and Andrew Polstra, later joined by Senket Kanjalko. And essentially, it bridges the gap between what spending policy you want for your coins and what actually ends up being implemented in the Bitcoin scripts. So value transfers in Bitcoin works with these coins that are out there in the open and each of these coins has a value and a small program that is attached to it. And to, the network is enforcing that anyone can spend these coins provided that they uh, provide the data such as the program linked to the coin executes correctly. And Miniscripts is going to provide you the tools in order to, to, to analyze this program. So it's going to uh, analyze the spending conditions of the program and also it's going to give you more information about it, such as the cost in resources. Uh, for instance, it's very important for present transaction protocols to know what's going to, to be the size of the spending transaction that you're presigning because uh, if someone can somehow inflate the size of the spending transaction, it could be a security issue because it could hinder the confirmation of this transaction. And also it's going to allow you to analyze well, whether this program uh, will be spendable without third-party malleability, which is uh, a good thing as well, uh, more for the networks than for, for yourself, but it's interesting. And so what's really nice about Miniscript is that it's going to give you guarantees about this analysis. So I'm going to introduce you to two main concepts that may be a bit complicated, but really is on it. Uh, it's about consensus soundness and soundness completeness. So in Bitcoin, you have these rules, these consensus rules that are the network rules, and you have also some policy rules or standardness rules. The standardness rules are stricter than the consensus rules. And when we say that the spending conditions that are analyzed by miniscripts, uh, it guarantees that it's consensus sounds, it means that there is no other way of spending this program, there is no other way of spending this coin of satisfying this program than the one that miniscript gives you. And uh, standardness completeness tells you that all the spending paths given by many scripts are going to be spendable by standardness. Essentially, if you create a coin with this program, you're not going to get stuck and not be able to spend it. So that is, there is no way around uh, spending it otherwise from someone with bad intentions, for instance, and you're not going to get stuck. Okay. So let me try to summarize and you tell me where I'm getting it wrong. So just for people who are like totally new or relatively new to Bitcoin, we, you might be used to sending a Bitcoin transaction and we might think, oh, I'm just paying to an address. But really, you're paying into like a script. And in order to spend out of that, you need to satisfy certain conditions. And in Bitcoin, that can be things like a time lock. That could be things like multi-signature, like multiple people need to sign. And it could be like who needs to sign. And so then what we're doing here with Miniscript, and this is, again, coming back to what was created by Peter Weller, Andrew Polstra, and Sankit, is this idea that we can have, that we can more easily use complex scripting that already exists in bitcoin today but it's just this is like the layer this is kind of like a layer that helps us analyze and communicate it to each other even if we're using different wallets like if i'm using a ledger device and some other software wallet or if i'm using a spectre diy or maybe in the future a cold card and that we can sort of speak the same language and more easily analyze 
the conditions. And so you were mentioning here the consensus soundness and standardness completeness. So you were saying with consensus soundness, you're saying there's no other way to spend those coins than what you've spelled out in those policies. And in standardness completeness, I think you're saying that basically we're checking that you can spend out of it, that we're not kind of burning our coins, right? That we're putting them into some address that nobody can spend out of. No, no, actually, let's say we did a manuscript today and that it needs, you know, two out of the three of us, that those are valid and we can spend those coins so long as we meet the conditions, right? And every branch, every spending condition uh, encoded by the script is spendable and is valid by standardness. So all persons taking part into the scripts can spend as well. So I can't, I can try to, to, to make a script with both of you guys and, uh, then you, you just get stuck and I can blackmail you. If you analyze the scripts with mini scripts, mini script is going to tell you, yeah, it's safe for all three of you to, to get into this script. I see. Salvatore, anything to add here? Yeah, uh, maybe the only thing I'll add to that is that uh, Miniscript is not so much a feature for uh, users directly, but it's more a feature for, for developers because it enables... Uh, so Bitcoin already is programmable because you can already program uh, the way you want your money, your coins to be spendable. Uh, but Bitcoin makes that actually uh, work in practice. So it will be possible to decide the spending conditions in practice, which is something that so far was always hypothesized, but n- never really done uh, at, at a large scale and never was easy to do. I see. And so probably that comes into one of the criticisms, I guess you're touching on that as well, because some of the criticism I've seen online as well, my friend NVK has mentioned, he's saying, oh, he's kind of said, all right, we're going to bring it, we're going to bring in Miniscript support into Cold Card, but it's probably going to be something that two users use and what's the point of this anyway couldn't i spend that time doing more other things that are practical so i'm curious if you have any views on that kind of criticism yeah sure so the way i see miniscript is that uh it enables a whole uh landscape of different things that can can now be built on top right so while this can sound very complicated because there are so many possibilities some of these will be advanced use cases, but some might be even very easy use cases. So uh, Miniscript is not something that the users will have to handle directly. And while we've initially, of course, the first the first deployments will be on uh, advanced tools for, uh, for people who are a bit more uh, keen to experiment with new toys and new tools. But there are many use cases where you could actually make self-custody uh, a lot easier than it is today. So the programmability becoming easier will enable both advanced use cases, but also very uh, easy use case where you can help users to do things uh, more easily than before. And we can cover this a little bit more later with some examples. Yeah, sure. Um, And one other area I'm sure people might be thinking or they might be concerned. Well, hang on. If if I'm going to do all this Miniscript stuff, how do I verify that as a user? That, okay, my screen is telling me that it's a two of three, but how do I know for sure that maybe there's not some, let's say the malicious attacker or the company is building in some unknown pathway that I don't know about? Like, let's say I think it's a two of three multisig with the three of us here, but actually this malicious company also has their own spend condition that they can just spend on their own. How, how do I as a user protect myself against that? That's, that's why the, the, the possibility to uh, verify what you're signing and what you're doing with Miniscript on the, uh, on the screen of the device is crucial. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, when you are going to try to use uh, Miniscript wallets on, on a ledger device, the way it's designed is that before you start using this new wallet that uses Miniscript policies, you will have to uh, inspect the policy itself, like the, the, the spending conditions. 
And uh, so this could definitely be uh, a point of friction for the for the uh, user experience of the user. But this is something that you do only uh, once when the uh, wallet is created. Uh, while in all, all the future use cases, you'll be able to use the fact that you really inspected that policy, uh, that maybe you give a name to that policy and you call it cold storage. And so the next time you use the policy, the, screen, the, the device will just tell you you're spending uh, from cold storage or you're receiving in cold storage. So uh, definitely there are possibilities for uh, friction there because these things are not necessarily easy to inspect. Uh, for for the user, uh, but we are just starting. So uh, of course there are there are ways of making these things uh, easier for the user. And uh, in the future, for example, we might uh, figure out what uh, spending policies are commonly used uh, by people, and so have additional uh, support in terms of UX for those specific policies where you instead of showing the mini script, which is a difficult thing to understand, you could uh, name these policies in a more easy to understand language, for example. And uh, so so yeah. That I think there will be a lot of iterations on uh, getting the best possible UX, but the only way we can get started is by deploying these tools in a way that's safe and we start with advanced users. Sure. And so maybe we can summarize that answer as there might be some well-known policies or well-known ways of executing this and people just kind of stay into those well-known pathways. I mean, just like today when people sort of, they're operating in certain contexts where Maybe they are using a specific kind of wallet, like maybe it's just a, a basic wallet, you know, this kind of si- keep it simple, stupid. So on that topic, Dan, could you explain for us what are some of the use cases that you could see people using Miniscript enabled tooling for? Like, is it inheritance? Is it decaying multisig or degrading multisig? What, what are the main use cases you guys see? Yeah, maybe just to get back and and, and praise question, people nowadays don't check the scripts themselves on their signing devices. So if you take part, uh, if you create a new address, you don't check the scripts. If you take part into a multisig, you are not going to check the raw Bitcoin scripts and the check multisig that is happening on your on your device. You're trusting the firmware of your of your device to have implemented the, uh, these templates. And Miniscript allows you to do that, but it also allows, well, it allows the developers to use uh, these templates and much more. And also it allows you, for instance, to infer, to analyze some Bitcoin script on your device and infer the semantic policy out of a raw Bitcoin script that would be unanalyzable for, for a regular user. Um, to get, to get back to the use cases, uh, so obviously I'm, uh, biased on the inheritance here, so, but, yeah, maybe maybe something else is that we've then revolt with uh, with miniscripts. So it was with time locked uh, a time locked path and time locked multisig as well. Uh, it allows uh, having recover- time locked recovery paths. It allows uh, sorry something just starting and some noise sorry. And also well also maybe what's very interesting about miniscripts is that it's composable. So let's say that the three of us want to get into some script of some sort and that we say two out of us must uh, agree to spending this uh, this coin. For now, we only think about it with one key per person, but it could be one policy per person. For instance, uh, Stephen, you might want your personal policy to be a two out of three between three different other wallets. Uh, myself, I, I might want to have uh, some sort of co-signing with a company that I trust. And uh, Salvatore might want to just have his own uh, bulky on the ledger. 
and we can come together and compose these policies. And when we want to agree uh, to, to spend this coin, we do our little things on our sides. And well, essentially, it makes it makes everything more powerful and composable. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting point. So we could also point out that it's like an interoperability thing. So as an example, if it's in a company context, you might have an individual or let's say it's a senior person in the company who maybe has a personal wallet, but that wallet can play multiple roles, right? It might be used in a personal context, but then it could also be that could also be part of a multi-sig for something related to the company as well. So I guess there's like an interoperability benefit. Is that that's basically what we're what your one idea you're getting out there, right? Well, yeah, what you mentioned is using the same device in different setups. And what I was mentioning is more that you, let's say you, that you have a trait of three multisigs. And what I was saying is each of the key is actually not a key, but a mini script itself. It's a script itself. Gotcha. And so yeah, it could yeah. be a multisig inside a multisig. It could be a time lock, say a recovery multisig so, inside. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you're right. I think, I think I explained that poorly, but what I meant is like you could have your own personal setup. And in a way, the mini script is indifferent to whether I just had like one single device or whether I'm having a two of three. Actually, in the background, it doesn't really matter. As long as I satisfy the condition, you know, the script doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so let's talk through some of those uses as well, because I think it's in, I think it would be valuable for people listening just to understand, like, can you just talk through the inheritance idea? So let's say as an example, you want to leave some coins to your son, but today you're still, you're still using those coins now. So could you just walk us through what does that look like from a policy point of view? Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll mention a bit about this one and then uh, perhaps if Antoine wants to speak more about how what they're building at Liana because that's different. Uh, oh, I could be overlapping use case, I guess. But um, So uh, one, one example that has been, done, uh, has been done many times for Miniscript is in fact uh, inheritance. Uh, and the reason is that um, you could have a wallet that you're using on a day-to-day basis uh, but what happens, for example, if you are not able to spend your coins uh, anymore? So that could be because you lost your key or it could be because, unfortunately, people die. There was a, a recent uh, talk um, the, at, uh, at, in, the, um, in the conference in, in, um, in Prague uh, about that. Uh, from from Daniela Brozzoni, uh, and it was exactly about uh, what things you can do uh, to prevent your coins from being lost in case uh, you you die. Right, and one thing you could do is that, if, for example, if you have three children, uh, you could attach to your normal spending policy, which is just your hardware wallet, your key. Uh, you could say that uh, after one year, uh, two out of three of your children are able to uh, to spend your funds. Right. So that's uh, in this way they could uh, automatically inherit uh, the funds without having to go through any uh, different kind of uh, uh, setup. Like uh, past ways of handling that would be that you leave them the instruction somewhere, but of course there are a lot more uh, foot guns there because someone might find out these instructions to access your seed, uh, or like that becomes a very difficult problem on how to protect the yeah. seed, right? And you can even go further. Like uh, what happens if uh, two out of three of your children don't uh, don't agree? On how to split the funds well then you could add another key uh, which is with the notary and it's only active after two years right and so all these things become possible uh with miniscript and the they come become possible uh, almost at no cost yeah. let's say one question just on that uh, could you just explain is that done in a relative time lock way or with an absolute time lock so in this example let's say you're, you've got three children does that mean from the last time you spend it's one year from then 
or it's an absolute time lock from the time you started the wallet. Exactly. So Miniscript supports both kind of time locks. So you could say that some conditions become active at a specific time in the future, which is with the block number typically. Uh, or you could say that if the coins don't move for a specific amount of time, then some condition becomes active. So uh, in, in a case like this one that we just mentioned, uh, if you want a condition to be active after uh, one year, then you have to remember every once in a while to spend the coins by sending them to yourself so that you uh, refresh the timer, which is, of course, it's, it's a possible uh, source of friction, but this is also something that can be handled on the UX side from the, wall, from the wallet to remind you to do that, or uh, that, that's something that definitely we can uh, work in the future. One other question there, would that also blow up the transaction size, right? Because now we're dealing with a more complicated script. Does that mean you're paying more for every transaction uh, to have that? Not if you use Taproot. Well, (laughs) much less if you use Taproot. Uh, But yeah, it's going to increase the transaction size, but it's less going to increase the cost of using it because most FSD data is going to be part of the witness data that is currently discounted. So it's going to increase the... Uh, absolute transaction size, but the virtual size of the transaction is going to increase, but much less so. And with taproots, even much, much less so, because you only have to reveal part of the script when you're spending. Um, Maybe, uh, well, this discussion between relative and absolute is something that has come up for Liana, and it's very interesting, because also um, one drawback of using relative time locks is that they'll limited to one year and a half, uh, roughly. So the value of the time lock in blocks is only encoded in 16 bits by consensus and says that's roughly 65,000 blocks. So the maximum time locks that you can use in relative is one year and a half. So that's not, that's, that's large, but not so large if you want something very, very cold. And you can use absolute time locks there. Uh, let's say if you want a five years time lock, you can use an absolute time lock, but then you have to redo your setup every time. Every time you have to recreate a new descriptor to register it on your same device. But hey, if it's only every five years. And also when you want to recover with, with radiative time locks, since you don't receive your coins on your wallet all at the same time, they are not going to get a, to, to be available at the same time by the time you want to recover. So if your health are not technical, and want to recover, maybe only part of the coins are going to be available at certain height and for the rest of the coins, they will have to, to wait even more blocks. So that can be confusing and it's something that, that we are thinking about for Lian. And also uh, for the use cases, so there is the inheritance. Uh, the obvious inheritance is uh, I get one key and I, I, get, I give one key to my hair and it's time-locked. Then there is the decaying multi that Savatray mentions that you have, let's say, uh, four out of five that degrades into three out of five that degrades in a two out of five, let's say. And then maybe you, you introduce many more keys at the end, like at, after one year and a half and you decide that after one year and a half is definitely not normal if you didn't spend the coins. Uh, you can say it becomes, it becomes a one out of ten with ten keys that you would have given to, to many different people to do some kind of social recovery, maybe, because you just decide by, by this time, if I didn't spend it after one year and a half, it means that I basically lost it. So it better, I better be trusting my friends or relatives, uh, than, than losing it completely. Uh, and that's also something that we're thinking about with Liana, 
many people don't want to move from custodial services because of this very, very low probability that they have from losing their coins. So maybe something that we could do is that, okay, you, we're going to remove this possibility for you to, uh, from losing your coins by having this recovery time locked key to us. That is, in any event, you trust us after one year and a half if you fuck up completely. But if you don't, you're always in total control. So you get from something that is fully custodial to something that is 99% non-custodial, but in the event of you a total fuck up, you, you, you can still trust, choose to trust the company. And I find this particularly interesting to, to bring more people to self-custody. Back to the show in a moment. When it comes to securing our Bitcoin, removing single points of failure is important. And Unchained Capital can help you do this by upgrading to multi-signature, meaning you have a total of three keys where you hold two and Unchained holds the third key. Now, you keep those keys distributed and this can give you that additional peace of mind. So that way, you know, even if your house were to be robbed at night or things like this, you wouldn't lose your coins because you have used multi-signature to remove single points of failure and multi-signature can protect against a range of attacks. Now, Unchained can help you with this. They have a concierge onboarding program where you can pay upfront. They will teach you. They'll do a call with you. They'll send you the hardware if you need it and you can create a vault using multi-signature and Unchained can guide you through that process. So if you're interested in this program, go to unchained.com concierge. And lastly, mempool.space is the leading Bitcoin blockchain visualizer and explorer. So Bitcoin is a multi-layer ecosystem now. So you can see a range of things on mempool.space, whether that is the mempool, it's the blockchain, or second layer networks, such as the Lightning Network. And with mempool.space, it is fully open source. You can host this yourself. So if you are with an enterprise, mempool.space offers customized mempool instances so you can have your company branding, your own style, with increased API limits and you can be more closely in touch with the developers and the team to, for your feature requests. So if you're interested in that, go to mempool.space slash enterprise. And now back to the show. Yeah, so let me summarize that. And I think this is something that it may be controversial for some people, but it might also, it might also help more people self-custody. So it might be a debate point. But I think there will be some people out there who would otherwise want a custodian. And so this person this company, let's say it's a Bitcoin company, and they may want to have this kind of deep recovery key. And maybe it's, like you said, it's one and a half years out, or maybe it's five years out. And so this, let's say the new or less kind of um, confident Bitcoiner or new Bitcoiner who's maybe not totally comfortable to be fully self-sovereign, they may like that comfort factor because they may say, oh, okay, I'm controlling the coins. But if I don't spend within, let's say one and a half years or five years, then this company has a deep recovery key. So they, I don't lose the coins. I might just have to wait if I, if I totally lost my keys. Now, that may be controversial, but uh, we'll see. Salvatore, did you have something to add there? Yeah, another, another exciting uh, use case is that uh, because with multi-signature and with Miniscript, you can create policies where there are many keys that are particip- participating in this, in this policy, right? And so uh, why that's interesting? Because different keys can have different properties, for example, in how they're stored or how they are uh, managed. 
And so, for example, uh, one use case that I'm particularly interested about is uh, imagine you are uh, you are a company that uh, actually uses uh, already moved to the Bitcoin standard, so uses Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis, and so it has a spending wallet that they bring with them, right? Um, so they will probably bring with bring with them a hardware wallet so they can spend from this uh, from this wallet, and then. Uh, in that case, in that case, because they use that in the field, they still have to be a little bit concerned about this hardware wallet being not hacked, but maybe someone guesses their pin or, or they observe them while they're putting their pin. And so they, uh, then later they steal the wallet. And so they manage to access their funds, right? And so one thing that you can do is that, uh, instead of, uh, using this as a single signature wallet, you could combine this with a second factor key that could be hosted on a different machine, either a self-hosted or even by a service. And this uh, key can be programmed, uh, can be instructed uh, to only sign uh, according to the predetermined uh, policies. For example, you could say uh, to this service, well, only sign at most 0.1 Bitcoins per day, right? So even if your primary key uh, is uh, is uh, stolen, then you can put some limits on how much uh, the, the, the hackers will be able to steal. And then this you can again combine uh, with additional recovery keys that are in deep cold storage so that this can be done in a fully trustless way compared to the service because the service is not able to spend uh, these coins uh, without your help. Gotcha. Yeah. So it could be kind of like a corporate policy thing that limits, it's like a rate limiter. So it's like rate limited on this way, but with the deep recovery keys, you can sweep the whole amount out into a safe set up something and, like this and you could have different uh, people in the companies that have different policies or different uh, and you can do this with different keys in different spending paths that you can all combine with miniscript hmm. one other question i have is there may be some privacy ramifications here if somebody wants to operate fully in this kind of miniscript inheritance paradigm like as an example you may be a hodler who has got you know coins from 10 years ago and you may not want to spend or move those coins around. So are these miniscript policies, are they going to apply at a UTXO level? And then so that means if you want to keep those policies active, you're now going to have to spend all of your coins and common input ownership heuristic, right? Because you're going to spend all of your UTXOs together. Does that mean you're kind of doxing a bit of your privacy to use this kind of thing? Uh, so yes, uh, simple simple answer is yes, but it depends. Um, so... If you are going to use, uh, legacy segwit, let's say P2WSH, uh, then you are going to reveal the script. And if you are using a time lock in your script, let's say, or if you're using a mini script at all, because most people don't, you are going to have a very, very small, um, anonymity set. And even more so that you are choosing your time lock yourself. So is it even, even the value of the time lock you can actually stick out? Um, if you're using Taproot, you're, you're not going to show Unchain that you uh, you have this hidden recovery path until you actually need to use it. So most of the time, it's not going to be shown Unchain. And I think what, what you uh, the question was about the patterns of uh, cycling the coins uh, in order to, to recycle the uh, relative time locks to, to restart uh, the, the clock, essentially. Uh, yes, you, you could see some patterns uh, that uh, someone that is recycling their coins, uh, but they don't have to merge all the coins uh, themselves. So it's it's a trade-off between paying more transaction fees and, and using one or two, tra- two, two coins per transaction. But yeah, definitely you could you could see a pattern uh, in the future if people are recycling coins. 
But also what's uh, very interesting with, so it opens up a lot, a lot of questions about a lot of areas of Bitcoin development uh, of using all these new scripts. For instance, uh, with coin selection. So uh, we don't have, for instance, for now in Liana, we don't have uh, automatic co coin selection, but we're thinking that during the coin selection process, we're going to have a bias towards older coins so that you don't have to actually uh, do uh, recycling transactions yourself. But when you're spending, you're just spending the older coins so it recycles themselves and you, you, you break these patterns uh, that could be identifying you. Yeah, so this almost brings in a new paradigm, right? Because I think historically, at least in the coin control and coin selection world, it was sort of like... There were, as, as an example, people like Merch, right, who will talk about optimizing fees. And he has this branch and bound algorithm. And it's kind of like you're either optimizing fees or some in the privacy world are saying, no, no, like do it all about privacy. And you should like not you should be very careful which coins you spend and which ones you merge and all of that. So it's almost like now we've got a third paradigm now. We've got this third paradigm that you may be optimizing for functionality because you, your tap script or your mini script uh, is now dictating which coins you will actually choose to spend because I might have this old coin that's about to hit a, a, de degrade, a degradation and I need to spend that now because I want to keep it in my control, as yeah, an example. But you, you could see this functionality as just being future fees. Uh, you know that you are going to have to, to recycle this coin anyhow in the next six months, so you might as well spend it now that you need to make an actual payment than pay the fees of an entire transaction, an additional transaction in the future. I see. So there's maybe some ways you could be opportunistic about it and be like, oh, I was going to spend anyway. I might as well just build in my recycling transaction to the same spend. And therefore, my wallet is kind of keeping me in compliance over time or keeping me in the state that I want it to be in. And now that's probably also going to be an interesting challenge from both a software and a hardware perspective, because then it, it kind of... It's like, how do you remind that user? Like, does does the wallet tell you, oh, Stefan, your coin is going to come up. You need to recycle it now. Hit this to recycle. Like, how does it work? Well, we, we have a UX uh, box. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to call yeah. it, but we, we have uh, an alert uh, on the end and the UI is telling, yeah, well, uh, there is only 10% of your time like duration uh, that is left. You you might want to, to spend this coin to, to restart the time lock or the recovery path is going to, to be available. But surely there is a, a huge space for UX and UI optimization for from Bitcoin designers that and um, I'm far from, from being knowledgeable about it. But we, we could use help on, on this side, definitely. Yeah. Salvatore, anything? Yeah, about that specifically, I do think that the because the design space is so big, uh, the biggest challenges are actually on the software wallet side. Uh, there are some specific challenges for hardware wallets that we can uh, touch base later if you want. But, uh, but yeah, really, the, the UX issue uh, around these things, and also especially when they combine with things like optimizing privacy, uh, I think that will fall mostly on the on the software wallet user, uh, and that's why actually hardware wallet support is so important because uh, it removes the bottleneck that has been so far in trying out these things in the wild. So yeah, and I think another area that might be interesting is, of course, there's going to be commercial services around this, and of course, in Bitcoin, there's a strong open source ethos. Is there going to be a possibility for people to self manage, right? Like to not have to use a provider and be able to, like, obviously today we have you know, various node in a package, right? Umbral and Raspberry Blitz and all of those. Maybe this could be like a module that, you know, it's like your little self-hosting module that if you wanted to run it for yourself and not have to, because here's an example, like what if there's like some decaying multisig and a company goes bust or the company, you know, that you were relying on as a service provider, they're not there anymore. Now what? 
Yeah, that's why this, this property of, uh, of Miniscript that you can compose or add additional spending policies is so important. And especially on Taproot, uh, adding an additional spending policy for emergencies comes almost at zero cost, meaning unless you use it, you don't pay for it. Uh, and, and so in this way, you could always uh, add additional keys that you only use for recovery if the main keys that you expect to use in most cases are not uh, are not available. And uh, related to something that we touched before for privacy, actually, uh, there is one nice property of Taproot that uh, without getting too technical uh, into how Taproot works, but um, the, the way Taproot transactions uh, work is that you combine one spending policy, which is just one key, uh, to, together with an arbitrary number of policies that are scripts. And so scripts could be miniscript, for example, right? And the nice thing is that actually, because of the properties of uh, Schnorr signature algorithm, you can replace any key with some uh, complicated protocols that uh, do basically multi-signature, but only using one key on chain, right? And so uh, this is nice because uh, in many of these multi-party signing protocols, if... Uh, all the parties that are participating, they know if uh, if you are able to, to use one of the spending conditions, right? And so in that case, if you uh, intend to use one of the spending conditions, as long as the participants are available and are online, they can just cooperate with you to use the main spending condition, which is the, the, the key path. And so these scripts will never be revealed on chain. So this has huge implications for, for privacy. Uh, and while it will take a long time to, to develop, like that's that's the end goal of where all this is going, in my opinion, uh, to have these spending conditions that uh, they are able to condition how the the coins can and will be spent, but in most cases they will not have to be revealed uh, on chain. One other concept that would be interesting, just from from what I was reading, there's this term descriptor templates. So can you tell us what is that and why is that useful here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the idea of using descriptor templates or or something like that uh, has been kind of rediscovered over and over in, in, in many different settings. And uh, f- for me, in this, uh, in this uh, idea that I'm developing of what I call wallet policies, the idea came out while I was trying to uh, support uh, multi-signature in the best possible way for, for ledger hardware wallets. Uh, but then, uh, while realizing that the same problems would apply more generally to, to Miniscript, then I try to, to make it completely independent from the specific uh, application and make it fully general so that it will work for an arbitrary policy, right? And so the problem that it, it tries to solve uh, is the following. There is this language called uh, output descriptors that is uh, basically able to describe all these um, spending policies that uh, you can use and you can combine that with Miniscript that basically extends output descriptors. And so this allows interoperability because uh, any software that understands descriptors will now be able to understand how these spending policies work, how understand uh, how these things should be signed and how uh, these things will work on chain and so on, how, how to estimate the fees for this transaction and all the necessary things that uh, wallets need to do. Uh, but the problem is that, uh, so there are a few problems though. Uh, output descriptors are a very uh, general language and so they are a bit too general, meaning they can describe uh, sets of scripts that are not how typical software wallets actually manage the, the wallet accounts. For example, if you take the typical wallet, let it be single signature or, or multi-signature, uh, the way they handle uh, these 
scripts is that they generate basically two sequences of uh, possible scripts that correspond to the, their addresses. And those are the receiving addresses and uh, the change addresses. The receiving addresses are the addresses that you will give to someone who wants to send you money. And you try always to give a new address because otherwise people can uh, basically, you, you will leak some information about how you use money and people will uh, able to uh, link payments, right? While the change addresses uh, are basically addresses where you send money back to yourself because uh, in, uh, without game, getting into uh, how exactly the UTXO model works, but when you spend uh, some coins, you always have to spend them in full. And so if you don't have a set of coins that matches exactly what you want to spend, what you do is that you send uh, whatever is the amount you want to send to your uh, destinatory, uh, to the receiver, uh, and then you send some money back to yourself. And those go into this change addresses, right? And so... What a software wallet considers an account is basically a chain of these two, uh, uh, these two chains of addresses, basically. And so, uh, wallet policies kind of build on top of uh, descriptors and miniscript by creating a standard, a standard language that software wallets can use, and it's very close to to, uh, to descriptors, so it's very easy to convert from wallet policies to descriptors, uh, or, or from descriptors to wallet policies that are supported. And by creating, uh, by kind of forcing the pattern that anyway wallets are using nowadays, uh, you avoid using uh, scripts that are not following these patterns unless you have specific reasons to do it. Um, and another reason that um, wallet policies, another thing that wallet policies tries to, to address is that uh, more specific to the usage of these things in uh, in hardware wallets. And so, uh, as we mentioned before, when you use uh, wallet policies. Uh, and this is already true for multi-signature. Uh, when you start using these policies, you need to be able to uh, to verify on the on the hardware wallet exactly how the policy looks like, and so that uh, and so that you know exactly what you're doing. And the reason that's important is that uh, your computer might have some malware, and if the computer has malware, they could change the policy. And so for the hardware wallet, it's not enough to verify that uh, your key is in this policy, because if the malware changed the policy, they could control more keys than you, for example. And so, uh, or even in a multi-signator, they could control enough keys so that you are unable to spend your funds. And so in this way, they could ransom you to say, hey, if you want to see your Bitcoin again, you give half to me, right? And so... To prevent these kind of attacks, you need to be able to inspect policies exactly on the screen of the hardware wallet. So one of the things that wallet policies try, uh, the, the standard that I'm trying to propose of wallet policies uh, tries to do is to make uh, these descriptor templates as short as possible. Uh, and also to separate the descriptor templates that kind of specifies the structure of the policy from the the public keys, which is another thing that is also part of the uh, wallet policy, but it's easier to inspect these two things separately. So uh, when you register a wallet policy on a, on, on a ledger hardware wallet, you will first inspect the, uh, the, the descriptor template, which is the, the policy, uh, which is the structure of the policy, which is like a multi-signature two out of three or, uh, or a second factor between my key and, and some other key, right? And then on a separate step, you will inspect exactly what are the public keys. So one or more of these public keys will be your own public keys, while some other keys will be from other parties or from some service or something. 
And um, so, yeah, I'm proposing that uh, as a standard because I believe it solves problems that any hardware wallet implementing these things would have. Uh, and plus, it, it makes it a natural language to agree on a common ground for all the software wallets. I see, yeah, because as I understand some of the critiques and maybe going back to what NVK from CoinKite was saying, is he was saying there's all this complexity here. And so they want to build something safe. They don't want to put their customers into, you know, as I'm sure you don't either. Anyone, nobody wants to put their customers into like a dangerous position. But then that means there's a lot of work on the manufacturer, the software engineer to make sure it's safe. And if there's all this complexity in there, uh, you know, but I can understand from your perspective, you're saying this is actually something that maybe it helps ease some of that or at least make it easier to assess what is, if I'm the user, what am I signing and what am I saying yes to? Um, and hopefully, you know, not being susceptible to a ransom or a, some other kind of malicious um, signer attack there. So could we talk a little bit about what it looks like from a software side as well? So Antoine, could you just walk us through what does it look like on, let, let's say today on Liana, what does it look like today when you want to set up Miniscript? Yeah, um, maybe just Again, to get back and when what you just mentioned about uh, the complexity, it's it's important to, to remember that it's actually it's Bitcoin that is complex and Miniscript that makes it safer to use. It's not the other way around. We're not making things more complex by introducing Miniscript. We make them valuable. Um, yeah, for so it's in two parts. Mainly, you have to first create your output descriptor, which supports many scripts, and uh, then you you can use your wallet. So typically, you would run Liana. Uh, it would pop up uh, what we call an installer, where you have to choose uh, the spending policy that you want for for your uh, wallets. For now, we only support one. Uh, primary key and one timer key so the installer is very simple you just plug let's say your first signing device get the expert from the signing device in the installer for the primary key get the expert for the, uh, the secondary key, the time locked key, the recovery key and uh, you choose uh, the number of blocks before the recovery key becomes available and then you just go through the steps. It checks your connection to your Bitcoin D and everything that is a regular wallet would do. And then you get uh, to the installer. And you can also, from the installer, import a descriptor that you would have created on another wallet and recover from a descriptor. And you can, let's say, if you're recovering from your backup, you input the decryptor, you take your recovery key, and you can sign uh, a recovery transaction. In the future, and that's one of the big UX strategies that we're going to face, the installer is going to get much more complex because uh, even as of end of the month, we're going to have the release of multi-sig, so you will be able to use multiple keys in each of these two paths, so multiple keys uh, as primary keys and multiple recovery keys. And then in the future, we're going to have multiple paths, so you can have multiple keys and more than two paths, time-locked paths, for instance, for NVK and multi-sig, and it becomes quite a mess on the installer if you, you just put everything uh, on it and not very understandable for the user. Yeah. And so just on Liana then, is the idea that you can, like the main wallet is like a hot wallet and then the recovery key is like a hardware signing device or like, can you just walk us through what you're currently able to do and what you're planning to do? Currently, we only support signing devices in Liana. We don't have okay. any hot keys support. Uh, we okay. are going to add it for the next release that is coming up for the next for the end of the month. So the next release is going to have multi plus hot keys. 
I, yeah, I see it mainly as just make it easier to test to test it, but you probably don't want to to, to use hide keys uh, for any substantial amounts, anyways. So. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and Salvatore, can you tell us a little bit? I'm not sure if this is built into Ledger Live yet or is that coming. Could you tell us what it looks like in Ledger Live? No, at this time, it's not uh, planned to integrate this feature in, in Ledger Live. Uh, it's more like supporting something for, for the ecosystem and then let people uh, build new things. And one of the exciting things is that because the design space is so big, like I, I, we already mentioned a bunch of applications we could mention more and i'm sure one year from now we can look back and people have implemented maybe 10 20 different use cases that we didn't think about like one example is like a few months ago i learned um, there is this company um, uh, rob hamilton's one rob one ham yeah rob hamilton, yeah and so they were building something to do uh, insurance on uh, um, on bitcoin right and uh, they learned about Miniscript and they just figured out themselves that with Miniscript, they can do stuff that is useful, useful for the use case. Because uh, since they are doing insurance, uh, they can tell the users that they will do insurance on their assets, but they want them to custody their assets with specific ways, with specific policies, right? So this is not something that I will ever think about, but people will find use cases for these things and people will build uh, useful things that's my yeah so i could see use as you mentioned insurance obviously uh they might want to use that to help de-risk the way coins are stored it could be applied in a corporate context right as we've mentioned the corporate or business context where multiple people need to have access to coins um it could also like you, you mentioned inheritance maybe even a family maybe a family might want like Maybe not today, but, you know, let's say after this has been built out, a family may want to do some kind of mini-script policy together and then that way jointly manage their coins. Or the, simp the, the simplest thing, how do you defend yourself from a $5 range attack, right? You can, you can send coins to a wallet that you control, but you cannot spend for a year. That's very simple. Right, right. <laughs> so you can have like a panic button, right? You can sort of have a, like a, I'm under attack. If you really, if you really not, don't plan to spend most of your assets, you could leave... 10% out and send 90% to a wallet that you yourself cannot spend for a right. year. That's an interesting idea. And then, I don't know, maybe you would have some kind of emergency unlock with multi-sig and things like this. Exactly, exactly. But then what, what if, with a, if I come with a branch and I make you pre-sign the transaction that is going to be vetted in six months? And then it's basically a race between me in six months and you. Well, that's, that's because... Uh, since you use Taproot, you can hide another spending <laughs> condition uh, on the script tree with a different key that has right a shorter yeah. time lock. Well, actually, on that, let's talk a little bit about the Taproot app aspects because, as I understand, Miniscript was pre-Taproot, right? Like, it was created pre-Taproot. So what's going to change in a Taproot context? I know we've mentioned it across our conversation, but if you could just summarize for people, what are the Taproot implications of having Miniscript? You're going to afford using much bigger scripts you are going to afford from a privacy budget let's say using actual uh, complex scripts because you're not going to reveal them and i think it's the main point of using taproot for, for a regular user is that you can have all these hidden paths spanning paths that you would only use in case of emergency but also technically it removes a lot of the bounds that were present uh, on the legacy scripts, uh, such as the number of maximum numbers of operations that can happen uh, in a script. So you can afford having larger scripts, 
and it also uh, removes some mediability vectors uh, in the script by making some rules that were only standardness rules that were enforced by uh, most nodes in the network, but that not, were not part of Bitcoin, by actually enforcing them by consensus. So we can rely on them within the scripts. And so, yeah. Yeah. Interesting, because I saw some of the some of the haters were saying Taproot was not really doing much or adding much to the network. But I mean, this is an obvious case where maybe there's actually new functionality being brought by Taproot. So, you know, the Lightning guys are using, they're looking to use Taproot. And I know Laulu and the Lightning Labs team are looking to have Taproot channels. And they're working towards that. And this is another example where Taproot is actually bringing a new functionality that could bring all these new features or make it more feasible for people to do. So, but I mean, the jury's still out. Like, you know, we still need to see companies actually building out and making these things. But uh, I think it's it's an interesting example of actually, here's an actual Taproot benefit. Yeah, I have no doubt that use cases on Taproot will uh, will flock soon, as soon as the, the tooling is built and people expecting Taproot usage to, gr- to, to grow before the, the tools are built. Like, well, there is no reason to switch to Taproot before the tools are built, uh, you can do the same things on SegWit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so looking forward, like, do you have any other ideas on where you would like this to go? Is there is there any um, other directions that we haven't mentioned so far that you you know think, or any other important points that you think about uh, this that we haven't covered? So it's uh, a slippery slope because I don't know much about it, but I, I guess I'm interested, and that's that's something that we were discussing just before the show with Savatry. I'm interested in in how Covenant would be inter- integrated into Miniscript. So on this side, if Sam FC more technical listeners want to have a look, uh, Andrew and Sinket have an extension of Miniscript for Liquid several for Elements, and that takes. Uh, into Miniscript, some of the introspection primitives uh, uh, that are made possible by the Elements scripting system. That yeah, that, that's interesting. Basically, you could say in your Miniscript, you can only spend uh, immediately, but as long as the output at the uh, second index in the spending transaction has this value, or that you can only spend after six months if you spend with a transaction that I don't know as a single input. So you can introspect in the spending transactions. That's interesting. Um, but that, that relates also to, to other covenants proposals. What, what are the, the limits? What can really be encoded, uh, into a descriptor for, for covenants? For instance, I'm not sure if all the information for, for Matt for the proposal uh, of Salvatore could be encoded in a single descriptor if we need a more powerful language for this or, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting thing with uh, descriptors that uh, we are implementing descriptors today, but it's not something that it's uh, set in stone, meaning we can always add new features. We can always, like if, if a future soft fork adds new features of Bitcoin, then you could uh, expand the auto descriptor language to implement these new features. And so having this language already available will make it a lot easier to extend the language and roll out new features. 
because that's always been a pain point uh, like from the switch from the legacy to segwit from the switch from segwit to taproot and so on every every one of these upgrades has always been very slow in adoption because it was very uh, long and time consuming to build the tooling uh, while I think now we are getting to some solid foundations that are much more easy to extend and much uh, easier to adopt okay great so yeah let's let's just summarize like we've gone through a lot of stuff and I know uh, this is probably a bit more of a technical episode so uh, hopefully people people might have to kind of go back over but let's just kind of quickly give a you know high level summary here right like miniscript is this way of making it easier to assess and interoperate between wallets in terms of Bitcoin scripting uh, and make it so that maybe you're less likely to have like a vendor lock-in, right? Because you can have Miniscript and it's like cross-compatible in a way. So that's useful, that's handy. Uh, and it makes it easier for engineers and entrepreneurs to build something out in a, that would have previously been too complicated or maybe that was in a too hard basket before. Whereas now with Miniscript some of these ideas become feasible and maybe it makes it easier to do this inheritance planning, time locking, business context. So I guess that's kind of how I would summarize it. Do you guys have any other you know, closing thoughts? Why should listeners care? Closing thoughts, maybe something that we didn't touch on that, that's important. You know, IDP descriptors, uh, even less and especially less uh, technical listeners should look into IDP descriptors. It's a, it's a way of making your backup explicit because uh, the recovery process in Bitcoin is not only about being able to sign for a coin, it's about being able to locate the coin in the first place in, in the UTXO sets. So as, well, uh, when I took this analogy of uh, having of uh, the value transfers in Bitcoin being just coins in the open with value and a program attached, there is about 80 millions of these coins currently. So if you do not know in what script uh, your key was used, you, your key backup is useless. And currently we rely on implicit information. It's good enough in most situations, but when we are talking about people's money, most is not enough. We, we it's had with the expressions a way of making these backups explicit so that you know where your key was used and you have your private key to sign your for the coins that you located with with the backup. So yeah, closing search, look into backup output descriptors and try out Liana and we need designers for Liana, it's going to be a mess for the installer. <laughs> <laughs> Salvatore? Yeah, my closing thoughts. Uh, so we all got excited uh, listening to Andreas Antonopoulos and mentioning how Bitcoin is uh, programmable money. And uh, I think uh, Miniscript uh, changes that from programmable in theory to programmable in practice. So Bitcoin companies, I think everybody should look at Miniscript and what Miniscript can do for them. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I'll put all the links in the show notes. So thanks, Antoine and Salvatore. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So what do you think about Bitcoin Miniscript? Is it too early? Is it too complex? Or will it actually help things and make it better for us in Bitcoin? Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 452. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels. Mm-hmm.